Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Hi, Sean. Hi, Dominic. So a question we often get, and I wanted to get your expertise on, is especially with international companies, but I think people are interested in general, is you know, are constructive styles always wanted around the world? Are the, the norming group, does it apply to every country and so on? Because people often talk about big differences you know, between West and East yep. and all this yep. kind of stuff. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yep. How does it play out around the world? Short answer is yes, the constructive styles are recognised as the most desirable organisational cultural styles in every society. It's then what happens to the other ones. But just to digress for one moment, I mean, this does it work outside of or does it work in our culture is Mm. a question that's been around from the get-go. So you might be interested to know that David McClelland, who did all the work on the need for achievement that the 11 o'clock style is based on in the circumplex, the need for achievement. He did his work, of course, out of Harvard University and his studies were in the United States and looking at the relationship between, he really did two important things. He, he looked at the relationship between the need for achievement and performance and, of course, found the higher the need for achievement, the higher the performance, cut a long story short. Mm. But secondly and more importantly, can it be learned? Mm. And the answer to that was yes. So everybody said, well, of course, that only works in a Western culture, etc. So he up sticks and moved to India for several years. This is way back now. And he replicated both uh, exercises in India and found that it worked just exactly the same as it worked in the United States. So these things are cross-cultural. So let's come back to the circumplex. The best way in which we can compare cultures for countries is to use the ideal culture. So this involves, if you're not familiar with it, getting people to uh, respond to the organisational cultural inventory in terms of to what extent should these behaviours be implicitly or explicitly required for your organisation to perform at a high level. And so it's not about would be nice to have or would create a fun place to work. It's around what's going to help your organisation best achieve its objectives. And we look at how people across different countries and cultures respond to that. Every single country and our experience will score the constructive styles very high. Uh So we're all familiar with that in Australia. We expect the constructive styles. So they are universal across all cultures. There is not a culture in the world that doesn't reinforce doing well, which is what achievement is fundamentally, learning and growing, which is what self-actualizing is, helping others and being considerate often towards others, which is humanist encouraging, and being approachable and friendly and easy to get on with, which is the affiliative. So whether it's a personal style with an LSI or an impact on others and how I cause others to behave through the leadership impact or management impact, or whether it's a a normative expectation for behavior, organizational culture, every society in the world recognizes those particular behavioral norms. Now, the differences you get across cultures is what happens with the the passive defensive and the aggressive defensive styles. So one example would be, and this is gross overgeneralization, of course, to talk about Asia because you just lumped a whole lot of very diverse countries together under one Mm -hmm. little four-letter heading, but nonetheless, let's go with it for the sake of brevity. If you look at the Asian culture, some of the societal norms are around obedience, minimizing conflict, conformity, Mm. compliance, Mm. etc., 
And those, of course, are where, what we measure in the passive defensive style. So if I were to do an ideal culture survey in China or Hong Kong, Singapore even, Malaysia, you're going to end up with very strong constructive styles, but also quite strong passive defensive styles. The aggressive defensive styles are going to be pretty typically low in those cultures. And when you go to some of the Mediterranean uh, societal cultures like Greece and um, Italy, southern Spain, etc., you'll get, the, again, the constructive styles very strong, but this time around it'll be the aggressive defensive styles that will be relatively high. We also see that, by the way, in Eastern Europe. So passive defensive styles relatively low. So there, therein lies the differences. The constructive styles are universal. The societal norms of the country will influence responses to the other clusters. So I guess, so, so basically what you're saying is constructive is going to be across the board, but there might be a little flavor is a bit different. Yeah. And that there might be a little bit of color elsewhere. And I think in New Zealand and Australia, we tend to have a bit of an oppositional spike. Yep. Us, the uh, the Netherlands, uh, have a particular spike in the seven o'clock style from a cultural norm point of view, because they really are part of our culture. And when you think about the Australian culture specifically, I mean, the little Aussie battler kind of um, mm. metaphor is very much the oppositional style fighting against authority. You know, Ned Kelly, an iconic story of Australian culture. Mm, mm. So, so what, what we're looking at there is the impact of societal culture on the organization's culture. It's interesting that because um, so I lived in China for a while, for four yeah. years, and they would talk about some of the different sayings that are in cultures, which yeah. is interesting. So in the West, we talk about the squeaky wheel gets the oil. But in China, the saying, the translation is the nail that sticks out gets hammered down, which is uh, quite quite a different... Uh, but they mean the same, yeah? Well, kind of, but yeah. it's about being compliant, right? Yeah. Don't stick out. Yeah, and this is worth noting that this is one of our difficulties with translating the OCI into mm. non-English languages because one of the great strengths about the, um, the OCI is it's written based on what's called idiomatic language. So there are certain idioms in there that are very brief ways of saying something, but very meaningful ways. Mm. And you can't just simply translate it to another culture. So the, the very easy example is one of the style, one of the items that goes into conventional style is the norm, don't rock the boat. Now, you can't go to Thailand, for instance, and just translate that into don't rock the boat because mm. they're going to go, well, what are we doing in this boat? They will have <laughs> right. another, like the Chinese, the nail gets hammered. They'll have another metaphor or idiomatic staying. Mm. Problem is, when you find countries like China, I think there's something like 28 different idiomatic languages within simplified Chinese alone. Probably, so, yeah. 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 And the other thing, which I noticed at least in China, so it was interesting. One was the company had a very strong culture, which was a Danish company. And so that actually came through no matter where you were. So at least what a lot of people told me was that the culture within the Chinese branch of that company was very different from working for a Chinese, Chinese company. Yeah. I mean, that's the reality of culture is, how do I put this? Culture works throughout the entirety of the organization. So you might be anywhere in the world, but the country is based in Denmark, for instance. Then the country cultures or the, the companies in different countries' cultures will be a reflection of the main culture. Mm, mm. With... Flavors associated with Chinese office. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I think the other thing that came out, for me at least, was that fundamentally people are kind of people. 
People are people, as the old song goes. Yeah, yep. that's it. And, and they actually want the same stuff, and that's that Correct. constructive stuff. Correct. Uh, they might have yep. a different way of expressing it, yep. perhaps, yep. but the fundamental drive is actually all yep. the same. So when we work in uh, non-English speaking countries, we very sensitive towards the country's norms. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, put it very pragmatic terms, if I were to go up to China tomorrow to debrief a Chinese company's OCI survey, then the probability is that their ideal is going to have a fair bit of the passive defensive stuff in it, but it will have more of the constructive stuff. And of course, if the ideal has a fair bit of the passive defensive, then you can pretty much guarantee the actual is going to have a lot of it. Mm. And so I do not, there is simply no point in me trying to coach that company to reduce its dependence upon those passive defensive norms because that is counter societal culture. So there's no point in going and asking or suggesting or coaching a very reliable, consistent, compliant, conservative Asian company or executive to now suddenly not be that because that's what the culture reinforces. Mm. So instead, you focus on growing the constructive styles Mm -hmm. because, again, you can guarantee that if they have a very high passive defensive cluster in their culture profile, they'll have a relatively low constructive. It becomes a case of beware what you wish for. Mm. And so you focus on increasing the constructive styles rather than working on reducing the defensive styles. Mm. Mm. And often these styles are reflective of where the countries are at from a societal development point of view. So I'll give you an example. In Romania, for instance, in Eastern Europe, we find consistently amongst ideal circumplexes high competitive style. Mm. And when you look at the society, it really is very competitive. I mean, it's a new economy. It's only 25 years since the revolution when they threw out Korsjeshku, possibly 30 years by now, but very recent time. So literally chief executives you're talking to were probably standing in Revolutionary Square on the day with a gun as part of the deal. And what's important in a new economy like that for people, rightly or wrongly, is that they look like they have succeeded in this new economy. And one of the ways in which you look like you've been successful is you're driving a flash car. So as the son of a senior executive I know very well over there said to me, he was about 17, he said, everybody in Romania drives a fancy car, none of them can afford it, (laughs) but they still drive it. And that's the the competitive culture. I need to show you that I have been successful. So there I am in my Mercedes S-Class or BMW, uh, whatever it might be, something that says I am successful. Very important to them. Don't tell them not to do it. You're wasting your time. So focus on being more humanistic and affiliative and all that kind of stuff, and you're on to something that will work. And so is that, Sean, because often when we talk about the the styles, we talk about the payoff and trade-off of styles. So people do things for a reason. So they buy the fancy car and they show off because they get something out of that, right? And society, maybe they are admired or whatever it is. But there's a trade-off to that. They can't afford the car, right, in that case or or whatever else it may be. But with the constructive styles, there's not really a trade-off. No, there's not. And and that's one of the powerful things around the constructive styles. That's why they're called constructive. I mean, they do build. They do add value to. That is the idea that the more you do this, the more you will likely get a positive outcome from it. And you're not having to subdue or subside any other needs. It will be fulfilled from those constructive styles. But yeah. There is payoff and payback around using the defensive styles, around safety, around ego and all that sort of stuff, but they actually don't build a positive outcome. They may look like it, but it's probably built on a house of cards. Mm. And so 
We talked about the ideal. Do we see differences around actuals or? Yeah, look, uh, we do, but importantly, that's got more to do with the difference in organisations than it has the difference in cultures. So the oh. way in which you do that without getting too statistical about it is you'll have a whole bunch of country companies or organisations from country one, organisations from country two, two separate data sets. And what you're looking at is to what extent do the organisations differ within country one? within country two compared to between country one and country two. Uh And so if there's a bigger difference between than there is within, you'd say, yep, there is a definite difference between those two companies, uh, two countries. Uh But what we find is there is a, and lots of other people have done this as well, the Robert House Global Study, not using our tools, but using a theoretical construct find that there is more variation within these country groupings than there are between countries. So we say, the differences in culture have got more to do with the companies than it has to do with the country, mm. which is why we use our ideal inventory to look at the differences across countries because now it's not influenced by the company. It's totally influenced by societal norms. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. It's an interesting one because I think there's a lot of energy put into this kind of cross-cultural stuff, yep. which you know it has... It has its place yep. and so on for sure. But at least my kind of belief is if you go in with good intention and so on and try and be constructive, then yep. hey, you'll most be all right. Of, most of life is simple. It's just that we complicate it. So, uh, I mean, Dr. Robert Cook, who's on the name of all of our materials, undertook separate to his role in human synergistics, but in his role as a researcher, a transnational study which uh, looked at Three major U.S. corporations, I think from memory, it was Hewlett-Packard, General Electric, and uh, Jones LaSalle, the global real estate company. Because one of their problems, and it's and again, I've seen this very common in my career, where they'll take a real hotshot executive from, say, U.S. or Australia or wherever it might be, mm. and that person is performing at a very high level, and they will put them in charge of Singapore or Malaysia or mm. Romania or Belgium, whatever it might be, and they just fail. Mm. And so these companies were interested in what makes for a an effective trans-global manager. Mm. And that's a long story in its own right, but the most important finding that Rob found, my understanding of it, was cultural sensitivity, for want of a word, that the manager who went over there and spent time learning how you do things in Romania and then using that knowledge rather than saying, well, this is the way we do it in America or we do it in Australia and trying to bury their country's company culture underneath the head office culture, that was the key to it. So this empathy towards and spending time to understand the implications of the societal culture that that executives moved to was a huge predictor of their performance ability. Mm. It's funny because I was just helping out Career Trackers, which is a, a great organization we help out. The bit. And I was just doing some facilitation for them, and it was around some cross-cultural. Yep. It was kind of a bit of an exercise. Yep. But I kind of basically at the end, my conclusion was: if you, if you come in and you're respectful, <laughs> then you'll be all right. Yep. Because you don't. Because people get obsessed. Like, so I lived in China. People come like, there's a million rules for doing everything. It's like there's no way you're going to learn them all. So don't bother. <laughs> you know, there's some big ones yep. that obviously yep. big faux pas you don't do. Some you learn on the way. I know I learned. Power distance is a bit different yep. there. And I learned that the hard way when I disagreed with my manager in a meeting, <laughs> which um, 
which yeah. here would be seen as like, yeah. oh, you're really doing your job kind of yeah. thing. But Yeah, well, I mean, power distance is a really important aspect of cultural differences across countries. So if uh, folks aren't familiar with what that is, it's based on the work of Gerd Hofstetter, uh, who did his original study in the 1980s for IBM, where he was looking at what made for cross-cultural differences in the IBM offices around the world. And it's criticised because it's limited to that one company, but it's actually mm. a very, very good study, and his son has taken over his work. And, and one of the dimensions he identified was this thing called power distance, which is the acceptance of power differentials without questioning. So in Australia, you have a l- very low power difference. So why should I be any more important than you are? Mm. But in China, you have a very high power different mm-hmm. differential. So it's accepted that such a such a person will be significantly more powerful than you. You will probably never be as powerful as them, etc. And then you see the reverse. I mean, I grew up as a consultant in New Zealand, and we had the Polynesian cultures there, which were also high in power distance. So there's simply no point in running a discussion group that involves one or two Samoans in the group, because when you ask them, you know, has anybody got any ideas about what we should do, you could stake your life on the fact that Samoans will not put their hand up and volunteer information, because that's not the way their culture does things. So Understanding cultural differences can be very helpful for anybody who's working in organizational culture development because you pretty much guarantee that you've got multiple cultures in your business. Mm. But again, I guess, unless there's a correlation in any particular style, which I don't think there is, or is there? Yeah, yeah. No, 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 look, that, that's fair enough. But it is about empathy and understanding, and it uh, understanding uncomplicates things. Yeah, so essentially – and. I was going to say the circumflex works around the world, but there's some different ways of doing things, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it's just putting it into context. Yeah. Well, circumflex does work around the world because it tells us that those constructive styles are universal, mm. that there is not yet to be discovered a culture that uh, or a country whose culture is not consistent with those values of excel, learn, help, have friends. I mean, it's basic as that. Yeah. And it's the subtleties lie in the other styles. So it... It helps us, and again, it can help us and train in a transglobal situation this empathy into managers about, look, be conscious to learn what are the norms in that society. And so particularly when they're not English and they are speaking English as a second language because so many people around the world speak English so damn fluently. It's very, and I speak as somebody who spends a lot of time living out of suitcase traveling the world. It's too easy to forget that it's actually their second language. Mm. And so they might be using a word in a context that we wouldn't use it. And uh, we, the empathy and understanding, again, just becomes important in every aspect of that. Mm. And just a final thought, because we originally, when the Circumplex was developed, it was American. Yep. It was an American tool with American yep. data and so yep. on. And then how long ago did we move to an international norm? Well, the LSI moved to an international norm in uh, 1989, I think it was. Oh. Uh, no, sorry, 1990, 1999, 2000. Uh-huh. Somewhere around there. Gosh, there's so many iterations of <laughs> products over the years. There won't be, a, uh, um, there won't be any marks on actually, this. Uh, actually, the latest norms for the LSI were introduced in 2009. Mm. I remember that well now. Mm. We don't, I mean, as, as an aside, we look at the norms all the time. I mean, that's obvious. Some organizer, survey organizations believe they have to sort of have a new norm all the time kind of thing, and so they will update their norms annually or something like that. 
A statistician put it to me very well once when he said, every time you change a norm, you're admitting that the previous norm wasn't adequate. Mm. And I think that's very true. I mean, the original norm for the LSI ran from 1983 to 2009, and that was an American norm. And it was mainly for face validity purposes because we're doing significantly more global work then 2009 than we were in 82. We switched the norm to a more globally representative one. So we have people from everywhere where we have collected data in the current norms. And uh, honestly, it didn't change very much. And it was one of the strengths of that original norm. It was a very powerful norm. For the ACI, the last norm structure would have come out probably off the top of my head about 10 years ago. And it does involve organizations from all around the world because we're working globally at two different levels. We work in 17 different countries. We have offices and affiliates in those 17 countries, but we also do a lot of work for major globals who have offices in you know, 20, 30, 40 countries. Mm. And I think the interesting thing for me was that the norm changed, but it was minimal. It was like one or two points. Yeah, very, very minimal. And that, that shows you that the norms are strong and consistent. And, of course, one of the risks with companies who regularly or too often change their norms is that it makes test-retest rather difficult because you're moving the playing field. I mean, you're moving mm. the goalposts because you compared against norm number one this year, but then when you come back in 18 months' time to do a retest, you might be being compared against totally different norms. So mm. any change so you've that you might the see in the profile is yeah. merely an artifact. Yeah, so you've stayed the same, but the goalposts have shifted, yeah. so you look better yeah, or worse yeah, or whatever it's, it is. It's, it's poor methodology, basically. Yeah, right on. All right, well, on the question of international culture anyway, you know, what I'm hearing is that the flight, like constructive behaviors are valued throughout the world. There may be a different flavor of some of the other cultural norms in there. Yeah. But if you ask people what they want, the overwhelming theme is Absolutely. always going to be constructive. In every culture, in every country. Fantastic. And I think that speaks to the power of the circumplex. It does indeed. So I hope that helps our listeners who are working in those international companies and, and trying to answer some of those questions. Great exercise, actually, is ask, do that exercise. Ask people, what does the ideal leader look like? What yep. does the ideal culture look yep. like? It's one of the things that I do when we're sort of kicking businesses off in non-English speaking countries and we have a translation version of the product, is you might have 100 people in the room and you get the, the um, no carbon required OCI and you get sort of a third of the room to describe the ideal culture, a third of the room to describe the best place they've ever worked in, a third of the room to describe the worst place they've ever worked in. I'd stake my life on the fact that the ideal will come up predominantly constructive with other bits and pieces, and the best place they ever worked will be more blue than green or red, and the worst place they've ever worked is going to be a lot of green and red, mm. every country in the world. I've heard that with DB, one of our, uh, our general manager. Yeah. Did a workshop in somewhere in Asia and they had it was an international company and they had people yeah. from all around the world flew in. And they did I think it was Ideal Leader and they held it up and it was all the same. <laughs> Absolutely. They're funny you know around all the world we still have the same beliefs. They're just different artifacts of those beliefs. You, mm. you take religion I mean there are different religions in different countries but they all fundamentally represent the same sort of beliefs. Mm. That's it. Alright Sean well we'll leave it there for this one. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, 
leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. Thanks for being part of our amazing community. We can only do it together with yourself. So long for now.